Welcome to Imaginarium, an alternate history of art, a podcast where we delve into the most obscure parts of art history. Hello, dear listeners. I'm your host, Naja, and in this podcast, we try to shed light on less studied parts of the history of art and visual culture. In today's episode, we will finally dive deep into one of the major segments of the golden age of illustration, something that is, arguably, one of the most prolific parts of the era, which is the rise of book illustrations, but more precisely, the age of fairy tales, folk tales and fantasy illustrations. Once again, this mini-season very much follows a somewhat chronological and thematical cohesive thread, so it would be better to follow it episode by episode. So if you are somehow just tuning in right now, welcome. But I'll just direct you to episode one of this mini-season just so it makes sense for you. But if you have listened to the previous episodes, well, we can simply dive in. So my lovely listeners, let's begin. The 19th century brought the creation of the Victorian concept of childhood and of the creation of the whole ecosystem around it. Before the late 19th century, the concept in itself of childhood was largely ignored and dismissed, very similarly to the way the concept in itself of adolescence was constructed during the 1950s and the 1960s. And I truly mean as a concept within the mainstream society, but also as a, as a part of population that you could now advertise to. Because, you know, people have always been children and teenagers. But it, the concept uh, that being a teenager or a child, for that matter, was a uniquely different experience that deserved to be talked about in its own context and terms that maybe it had a place within the global capitalistic system that was being developed during that era. As I said, during the late 19th century, the topic of childhood became a sort of subject of interest for the public, as the theories of education in the Enlightenment came into the limelight again. It is only really during the 19th century that books aimed aimed directly toward an audience of children became actually popular and more marketable. Suggestions were made to the parents that having some leisure time for reading was a good pastime for children, which had an educational basis as well. Basically, 
reading should have an aim to educate as well as to entertain. The importance of these newly developed pedagogy theories, as well as the fundamentals of the philosophies of Rousseau and Jean Locke, which which advocated for reading for children, and this brought a new way of conceiving the raising of children. When it comes to storytelling, there was a shift from oral stories and the original folk stories that were very grim, violent, and designed to teach the realities of the world to children, all the way to the 19th century version of them that was more sanitized and an easier version to understand for children with less bloodshed and sexual assault, let's say for one thing. Of course, the content of children's books wasn't only tales and stories, but those tales were a big part of the corpus that was destined toward children for both entertainment purposes, but also, as I said earlier, for a more gentle way of teaching. What we will be talking about today will be mostly about the golden age of illustration in Europe and the Western world, but stories travel and shaped the way we understand and communicate about moral issues and societal issues, but we will try to somehow capture the universality of fairy tales, the inherent common human nature of folk stories, even if the stories differ from place to place on the surface. At their core, it is a witness to the human desire to tell a good story, this instinctual need to be a storyteller. It is the same stories that are being told times and times again, and to me this is fascinating on so many levels. The idea that no matter how different cultures and lifestyles and contexts could be, there was something so incredibly human to the desire to tell stories to each other, to tell stories to explain the unexplained, to tell stories to teach and mold with morals and explanations, but not not in the way we necessarily understand them today. It was not something that was necessarily moralistic and paternalistic but more so that children could understand the way of life, the gender norms, to prepare them and confront them to the realities of life as they knew it, to make them understand the social order, to prepare them for death, hurt, but also for social norms and relationships and the way people needed to navigate it with each other. So the first illustrated children's book is generally credited to John Newsbury's 1744, A Little Pretty Pocket Book, 
intended for the instruction and amusement of little Master Tommy and pretty Miss Polly. It was a book where each page featured a letter of the alphabet, as well as an image and two written lines, one to describe the picture and a moral conclusion to it all. This really was an example of how children's books and illustration was going to decline itself from then on. The children could still have fun, but of course also as in the late 19th century those are the Victorian, and I would wager that the Victorians thought that you should not have too much fun either. It's art that really has an educational purpose mainly and is entertaining and aesthetically pleasing, really on a second level. And I think this is one of the things that is true, that you don't have to compromise on anything. It is possible to have something that has a practical purpose and still be aesthetically pleasing to you. This is how I usually try to do things. And while those books were indeed beautiful, this was mainly because of a desire to attract clients. Yes, the first goal was to educate, but really it was to make money, of course. A lot of these illustrators of the Golden Age illustrated books that were very much focusing on the concept of childhood. Not only fairy tales, even though we will come to talk about fairy tales in due time, but also very simple tales for children to be able to understand. So the books needed to be appealing to children, and the use of chromolithography in the later half of the 19th century made it possible to create visually incredibly vibrant and colorful images that would appeal to a child reader. Also generally afforded more freedom to the illustrators, to create the images and art that they had in mind without any technological hindrance. Talented illustrators were an integral part of the publishing industry, but especially for children who might not yet still be able to read, they will have the objective of capturing the imagination of the, their audience, younger children as well as grown-ups, through the visual medium to give a bit more interest to the stories or teachings. And we simply cannot begin to understand nor study those illustrations and fairy tales without understanding the concept of intertextuality, which I I don't think I have quite explained just yet. I don't remember if I did or not, so just in case I did not, But in simple words, it is the shaping of a text meaning by another text. And when we apply this concept to art history, this means that the understanding of a certain work of art will be through another painting or another text. So in this particular case, it means that when you study an illustration of the Golden Age of Illustration, You cannot ignore the context in which they were published. And I talk about, you know, the historical context, but also the 
material contexts in the way that they are part of a story. You have to understand the stories they were part of because they are part of a whole. So this conversation between the text and the illustration and the push and pull between the image and the text is absolutely essential to even begin to comprehend their meaning, as well as their place within the broader culture. The fairy tale is a huge part of children's book culture. While there were a lot of stories for children that were published, and we talked a lot about children's literature in general and the and the context surrounding its beginnings and the way it developed during the late years of the 19th century. But still, no matter what, a key part of the tales and stories we learn as children are definitely fairy tales and folk tales. Stories that were historically passed through the oral tradition and were only very recently written down and jotted down in the grand scheme of history. The oldest fairy tales were variations on stories such as Beauty and the Beast and Rumpelstiltskin, for example, and have been told as early as 4,000 and 6,000 years ago. Those origins predate some of the earliest literary texts and have traveled far and wide across the world and through time, always changing and evolving. Each time they are told anew. So these stories are built into the weaving of our beings, even more tightly than we can imagine. Once upon a time, that is how it usually all starts, doesn't it? We are all familiar with those tales. A beautiful and innocent princess, a faraway kingdom of cruel and conniving stepmothers and stepsisters, beastly husbands and kind godmothers, charming princes and mystical creatures. These stories now exist in the cultural backdrop for us all. I'll be Focusing in this episode more specifically on Western fairy tales, as well as the visual adaptation of foreign tales from a Western perspective, but this is only because I'm doing a deep dive into the golden age of illustration, which, which is really a period of 50 years that was a lot of rich visual creativity and was really confined within the circles of, you know, the UK and France and a bit of Europe and North America. But I do hope that I can show you a bit how it is all interconnected with the rest of art history and the rest of the world. But yes, these stories are not static and they never were. These stories traveled from country to country, from generations to generations. They have universal themes and universal motifs, and even though the cultural backdrop will 
modify it and make them each unique to its particular context, there seems to be an understanding of the world and of their own social norms that are always communicated through those tales. They were, you know, a simple way of entertainment in a time where there were not a lot of ways to pass the time. So tall tales told around the fire. But fairy tales and bedtime stories for children were a part of the general culture, especially in Western society from the late 18th century and onwards. They steadily gained popularity until the late 19th century and beginning of the 20th century. Where the popularity of these stories, especially especially within a literary format, was at an all-time height. So these stories were often found in small illustrated books that were read by both adults and children alike. From Perrault to Anderson as well as various foreign tales, the late 19th century will see a growing industry for the illustrated book. The context of the Industrial Revolution, as well as the renewed interest for folk tales and fairy tales, will make for a very busy era indeed of illustrated books. The reprinting of a lot of traditional fairy tales by Andrew Lan, who will also, you know, make them more palatable for the audience that they had, as well as the constant new editions and new fairy tale books that were written, will create a climate where lots of books will be published. And even though it will be mostly European tales, sometimes more foreign tales such as the One Thousand and One Nights, which also had a huge impact, cultural impact in the West, will also be published and illustrated by several artists of the era. Charles Perrault in France published his tales in 1697 under the title Histoire du temps passé avec des moralités, which can be translated to stories of times past with morals. So we can see this desire to teach and warn in those tales from Sleeping Beauty, Little Red Riding Hood, Bluebird, and Cinderella. These stories are classics and endure the test of time to really become cultural checkpoints of popular culture. Of course, this is also explained by the fact that a lot of these stories I have just named were the ones who got an animated adaptation by the studios of Disney, but this story, but this is a story for another day. And that other day will be next episode, so please anticipate that one. <laughs> I'm not an expert in literature. After all, my focus is really the visual arts, as exemplified by this podcast being an art history and visual culture podcast, as this is one of the things I have graduated in. But I do still want to make a rapid overview of the 
evolution and literary culture of fairy tales in the West, especially during the 19th century, and how it culminated with so many illustrated fairy tales during the later years of the 19th century. While the tales in, them, in themselves have existed for millenniums for certain of them, it is really during the last years of the 17th century that they were brought to the attention of the literary circles in France especially and writers such as Charles Perrault and Marie-Catherine Denois started compiling and writing these stories and committing them to paper. It is this act of putting those words to paper that really changes the way these tales are perceived and understood. The Grimm brothers during the 19th century did the same process when it came to the stories of their country. They basically wrote and recorded the oral history of folk tales and fairy tales across Germany by compiling these tales mostly told by women, by old women and publishing them and making a lot of money out of it. But you know, I have said nothing. So the immense popularity of those coincided with the technological progresses in printing and mass production of books, making them more widely available than ever to the general public. And during this process, there was also a definite sanitization of the original fairy tales. And here I want you to know that I'm really saying original with around it because because there's no original story there are many many stories and iteration of the same story as they were found in the oral tradition before they were compiled in writing that is simply the nature in itself of those folk tales to never be static to never be able to be fully captured the magic of those stories lies in the different iterations, in the slight changes every orator makes when telling it. And thus, there's always ways to play with them and give them a thousand and one iterations and faces, and they will always be true. The 1870s were a turning point for the golden age of illustration, which is why I use it as my point of reference for the start of this whole period. After all, different art historians have different ideas as to when this period started, but I choose 1870 because it is when one of the first picture books in fairyland a series of pictures from the elf world, was published in December 1869, which was a huge picture book illustrated by Richard Doyle. Illustrations that were not really the fairy tales and enchanting creatures that we now know of, but more the traditional tiny fairies of yore. 
mischievous creatures of the of nature. Those illustrations, while seemingly childish at first glance, were more geared toward an adult public. But it was the beginning of a change when the within the publishing world to cater more to the younger audience. When it comes to the illustrations that were published alongside the fairy tales, the visual and stylistic aesthetics and different art styles are very representative of the diverse art landscape of the era. From watercolors to oil paints to ink drawings to graphite, the illustrations of fairy tales and folk tales in the late nineteenth century spanned multiple styles and genres. So many of the artists of those fifty years of the golden age have incredibly unique and personal art styles that. Really push the boundaries of illustration. Illustration has one advantage on fine arts, especially within that, within those years, is it was easier to do something different, while the fine arts were very constricted to rigid rules about what you could paint and what you could not. Even though that was changing. But there was a freedom accorded to illustrators that painters and sculptors maybe didn't have as much. So while there are movements and artistic common threads, everyone interprets those visual influence in a very unique manner. Each of these artists brings a new perspective to the way those fairy tales are visually imagined. And it is in this era that the visual archetypes were codified very specifically. You know, the princess, the queen, the king, the prince, etc., etc. So these illustrations were also a conduit for the ideas that the Victorian society wished to communicate about social norms, gender norms, and morality. That they were also conveyed through the text of the fairy tales. Walter Crane is an immensely successful illustrator of the era, and the author of one of the decorative illustrations of Butts' Old News, published in eighteen ninety-six, in which he explores the history of illustrations that were complement to text. Throughout history, from the beginning of printing to the late nineteenth century, and this book is a good example of the historical understanding of hi- illustration history, but also the various influences of the on the artistic world of the golden age of illustration, and he truly creates a direct line from the first presses of the late fifteenth century. Until the nineteenth-century golden age of illustration, while meandering with the German, Italian, French, and Japanese influences, and the artists that he really considers as important to the 
understanding of the medium and that is a really incredibly interesting to have a contemporary appreciation of this movement as it was happening. So he names both Randolph Caldecott as well as T. Greenaway as important figures of the illustration geared toward children. He explains that for illustrators, the world of children's literature and fairy tales was one that was generous to the flight of fancy of the illustrators, as it was one that afforded great visual freedom. And it was, you know, it was more of a fantastical story. In this book, he details not only the artistic principles and history of illustration, but all of the aspects that were pertinent to decorative illustration for books, from the letterings to the various embellishments. After all, the book, the book as an object, was a work of art in itself. The decoration of it was not only limited to the illustrations that were created for it. The art created for fairy tales was honestly amazing. It was colorful, intricate, and still held a sense of humor to it, as, and as proven by his art and his writing. He had a deep knowledge of art history and of the visual culture that was surrounding him. And this is something that is very obvious in his art, where layers of art historical references meld and merge to create a multifaceted work of art. Some of my favorite illustrations of his are the ones he created for the tale of Beauty and the Beast. The character design for the beast is really unique in my opinion as he had the head of a boar and the beautiful 18th century garb. It's truly so magnificent and the beauty is inspired heavily by the pre-Raphaelite imagination of a medieval princess. And let's not forget the story of the beauty and the beast. It's one of those tales that have been floating around for several thousands of years and was often used not only for exploring the power disparities between men and women, but also to prepare young women for their marriages to spouses they probably met only once and who would become the beast that they had to become kind and generous to in order for the beast to turn back into a prince. No wonder Beauty and the Beast is one of the most enduring tales, but also there's like so many layers to explore. Anyway, so these illustrations were very, very visually interesting and beautiful, and I totally recommend to check at least Walter Crane's illustration for Beauty and the Beast. Let's not forget that the particular historical context of the 19th century in Europe will bring a newfound fascination for the Orient and 
while we have discussed previously the interest for all things Japanese and Chinese, so very much East Asia, there is also the interest for the global Arab Indian world as well, with the colonial empires of European countries such as France and the United Kingdom, which let's not forget are the dynamic duo of colonization. Exercising their powers over countries such as Algeria, Egypt, India, Syria, and more. So many others. And because of that colonial link, Western culture longs to be mystified and captured by the exoticism and romanticism of a foreign land. One of the important elements to consider to truly understand what Orientalist art is, is that it is art made by Western people for Western people. So basically, it will never be a real representation of these countries or the culture or the people that will live in it. Orientalist art will create a truly foreign and exciting and, most importantly, imaginary idea of what the Orient is. It's truly an invention of the West. One of the main scholars of Orientalism and post-colonial theory is Edward Said, and what he will explain is that Orientalism will be a Western it will be a way for the Western world to speak about the Orient from the Western perspective. And it will be a way to look at the other and to truly otherize, quote-unquote, the East, by putting it in contrast to the West. Said also explained that the Western identity will develop its own identity by putting it in opposition to what it considers foreign. So basically, it is a way for the Western identity to construct itself. Or, you know, more simply put, as Harvey Awards winner, illustrator and author, Chani Capetinoyan once said, Orientalism is being greedy, horny, and scared. And he was right. So these images, even if they do depict the Orient, also, once again, you know, the Orient, quote-unquote, they belong to the West, those images. Edmond Gillard was a French watercolor artist and illustrator who worked mostly in England during the late golden age of illustration and is an artist whose work I find absolutely magnificent, but is also very much tainted by the Orientalist craze of his era. Gillard illustrated books and magazines for most of his career and not all of them were an Orientalist mess. The main book we will talk about when we're talking about the work of Gillard, 
will be stories from the Arabian Nights, written in 1907, published and translated by Hader and Slaughter. And this edition will contain 50 colored illustrations as well as a pseudo rabbit typography to give it a bit more of an exotic feel. In these illustrations, the oriental woman is shown as languid, relaxed, and the epitome of everything that the Western woman is not. Mostly, what I want to say is that. Women in Western society were needed in the late 19th century, early 20th century to be very polite and quiet, and it was very tradified and very strict gender roles for women. And this is what Orientalism is about once again it's putting the imagined Orient in contrast to the West so that the West can build its own cultural identity by comparing itself to the East, by using the other as a mirror. It's also possible to notice that the colors that will be used for these illustrations are very rich and vibrant and add to a sense of exoticism and foreignness. The imagined East will be luxurious. Wild, pleasurable,、uh, the complete opposite of a Western society that was still very plagued by very strict sociological rules. This imagined freedom and temptation of sins will fascinate and enrapture the Western viewer. So the visuals of this story will be created specifically to cater to Western public. And that's where the Orientalism and the post-colonial perspective of these illustrations will start being in play. You can't ignore the relations of power between the colonized and the colonizer. It is more than simply a curious look upon the other. The Western eye will look at the East with the colonial gaze. These illustrations will indeed appropriate and incorporate elements of Oriental art. Once again, I really hate this word Oriental, but it's the only one that I can use in these circumstances. But it is very much of a nebulous sort of vague being. It the word Orient doesn't describe. Anything really? It doesn't describe a country. It doesn't describe a group of countries. It's like an imagined vision of a foreign other that is somewhat mysterious and exotic. And this is what I mean by by the Orient. I don't mean I'm not talking about the North African countries. I'm not talking about the East Asian countries. I'm really not talking about anyone apart from that weird imagined vision that some people had and still have to this date. And especially when I mean within the theories of Orientalism. And I I thought I had. Just in you know, just in case I hadn't 
specified it because I just really dislike this word. Anyway, I just wanted to make sure we, once again, were on the same page. But yes, in the end, these illustrations will only be a reflection of Western society. It will be a mirror of its own anxieties and social issues. I don't want to reduce down Edmond Dulac or his contemporaries simply to the their Orientalist art. God knows there are worse culprits. But it is still relevant to mention because these Orientalist depictions will influence the way foreigners, non-white people, will be perceived in the West. And these Orientalist tropes do still have an impact even today in how we imagine the Oriental other. The thing with those illustrations is that they are gorgeous. They truly are. I would simply be lying if I were to pretend they are not. But even the most beautiful things can have a nudly or complicated history. Edmond Gillard was known as one of the best illustrators of the Golden Age, and he really was, as demonstrated by how he was one of the most well-paid illustrators of his era. As early as his early 30s, his eminently ethereal art styles made him a very much a good candidate to illustrate fairy tales, and his illustrations were extremely lovely and elegant. His main medium was watercolor, which is a paint that is so very transparent and depending on the way it is used can give a very diffused effect, which really captured that sort of timeless feeling that fairy tales usually have being set once upon a time in a vague and distant past. Arthur Rackham illustrations for his side were more fantastical and instead of going for a more lovely and mysterious aesthetic. But he went a very different route with his art, creating a pictorial universe that contrasting with the more childish and warm and ethereal illustrations of the era did not feel as safe the monsters are truly scary. The forests seem creepy and un- uninviting. I would argue that Rakam was not only a fairy tale illustrator, but one of the f- real fantasy illustrators of the time, who seemed to revel in creating bizarre and weird and art while still giving those images and air of realism and rounding them in the plausible with the use of a very earthy color palette. This reminds me a lot of this very specific category of children's media that is honestly terrifying when you think about it a bit, but this sort of slightly scary and morbid stories have a definite allure for children. One only has to look at the incredible success of stories such as Peter Pan, The Unfortunate Events of the Baudelaire Orphans, or 
or the children's literature of Neil Gaiman in general with books such as Coraline and The Graveyard Book. The original, well, original as we said earlier, there's not really an original tale set in stone, but let's say the older ones. They catch the imagination of a younger audience very easily, and they are both intimately terrifying and fascinating to those young minds. I think this is one of the things when one loves the art of the past, whether we're talking about books, movies, visual art, or anything really. And it is having to contend that the with the fact that the historical context of these works of art are complicated. And it's not something that we have to necessarily forgive and forget. I think it is indeed more detrimental to ignore it. But as someone who loves the art of the 19th century a whole lot, especially when it comes to the graphic and visual culture of the era as evidenced by me writing a whole, season on this subject. But even with how much I love it, it has a painful history of it. A history of imperialism, a history of inequalities, of wars and despair, a history of labor issues, but also of art, joy, sharing and creating. I love the visuals of the golden age and I adore unraveling the stories even though some some of it is incredibly difficult to deal with. Beautiful things often have a very ugly story. But nonetheless, it is simply an era that I adore visually and thematically. It is not perfect, but it is in the past. And what I can do now is hopefully teach people all that I love about art history but also show the ugly parts of it. How much of it is ruled by colonialism, by capitalism, inequalities and money, just so that the art that comes now and after will be better, so that people can look at art and think critically and understand how everything is linked how everything is connected for a better appreciation of art, whether older art or newer art. I know I just spent a good chunk of this episode talking about the Orientalism of the fairy tales illustration of the Golden Age, but even with that, I think those illustrations are technically beautiful, and what does it say about me? especially as a Muslim North African woman. To me, in the end, what I want to do is show this Orientalism, show the way racism and imperialism were so entrenched in that era that, of course, it will permeate everything that was happening then. And it continues to permeate everything that is created and happening today as well. Even though the face of imperialism has changed, it is still very much 
something that we need to contend with. In the meantime, I still think these illustrations are gorgeous and I absolutely adore exploring the world of fairy tales and their illustrations and the way they were understood within the visual culture. And I hope it was entertaining and illuminating. So before we go, all of the relevant images will be on all of our social platforms at imaginarium underscore pod on Instagram as well as on Twitter. This podcast was written, narrated, and produced by yours truly, Naja. If you want to support this podcast, you can do so on patreon.com slash Naja. I want to take this opportunity to thank my patrons, Millie, Ilya Sala, Tronita Pechinuyan, Charles, Sam Hurst, Jenny, Jenny, Jameson Brad, as well as Natalie. Thank you so much for making the work I do possible. Today's recommendation of the day is the Dachu series Myths and Monsters, which is on Netflix as far as I know. And it is a mini series that really explores the way myths and folk tales and fairy tales have evolved through times and the relationships we have with these stories and what they mean to us and to society. So from the Arthurian tales to the mysteries of the woods, it is absolutely fascinating. On this, I wish you all a very lovely day, evening, or night. And I hope to see you again very, very soon.